0: W Living Planet.
1: Hello and welcome to Living Planet. Coming up on the show, we talk to environmentalist Bill McKibben about what the war in Ukraine really shows us about the climate crisis and what people have been missing in the fight against it.
2: There are two levers big enough that we could pull. One of those levers is marked politics and there's another lever big enough to matter and that one's marked finance or money.
1: We traveled to a place bearing the consequences of Germany's withdrawal from Russian coal.
2: The coal that you're using is stained
3: with blood with misery and displacement. Here locally thousands of families
4: are affected.
1: And from Lithuania we ask How are we supposed to recognize our seasons in the face of a changing climate?
4: We no longer remember what winters used to be like or what Lithuanian winters should be like before the climate crisis.
1: All that coming up.
2: Over the long term, we all need to move as quickly as possible to clean renewable energy so that the days of any nation being subject to the whims of a tyrant for its energy needs are over. They must end. They must end.
1: That was U.S. President Joe Biden talking in March 2022 about the world's reliance on Russia for its energy needs. And how that's problematic for a couple of reasons. Because, as Biden alludes to, fossil fuels aren't just polluting sources of energy that have adverse effects on the Earth's atmosphere and the air people breathe. They're also completely entangled in geopolitics, corruption, and conflict. And one person who has been particularly vocal about these links is Bill McKibben. McKibben is a prominent environmental journalist, author, founder of global climate action movement 350.org and the over-60s group Third Act. He says Putin's war in Ukraine is a crystal clear example of how authoritarianism, And fossil fuels go hand in hand. I got the chance to talk to Bill McKibben about why that is exactly and what needs to be done ASAP to solve the climate crisis. This is our conversation.
2: Well, let's start at the beginning with just a basic physical description of fossil fuel because it's important. Um, Coal and oil and gas are relatively scarce. They're available in relatively few places. That means that the people who live on top of or control access to those places end up with a lot of power they otherwise would not have. So, for instance, the king of Saudi Arabia, you know, people don't pay attention to the Saudis because they have interesting ideas about how to run the world. I mean, these are people who behead their political opponents with swords. They pay attention to them because they sit on top of oil. Uh, similarly, Vladimir Putin. The guy runs a joke of an economy that produces almost nothing of interest or value. Look around your house and try to find the number of things that were made in Russia that you use, unless you have an old bottle of Stolik vodka back in the liquor cabinet someplace, you're probably not gonna find much. But he has a lot of oil and gas, 60% of his export earnings come from that. And that allows him to build a huge army. And it's also, of course, allowed him to cow Western Europe for decades with the threat to turn off the tap. So (laughs) the most existential world historic reasons to get off fossil fuel have to do with the fact that we are destroying the planet's climate system in real time. But we also now have a, another opportunity to understand just how closely connected to the worst features of our political life oil and gas are.
1: So fossil fuels in this way give governments like Putin's and Saudi Arabia's relevancy and power that they wouldn't otherwise have earned.
2: Yes, that's right. And it extends really to almost anyone who you know ends up with control of large amounts of these resources. People wonder about, say, the dysfunction of the American political system. The single biggest force for that has been the Koch brothers, who are also Americans' biggest oil and gas barons. They control so much of our pipeline networks and they've used the... Uh, tens of billions of dollars that they've earned in the process to purchase one of our political parties. Uh, That's the reason that America has never done anything serious about climate change, for instance, and and much else. So in general, this kind of unearned political power that comes from control of resources is something that we now can get away from.
1: And I want to talk about that a little bit, because looked at this way, then, some of the tools of resistance to the war in Ukraine might not be the sort that normally come to mind for people. What are some ways then that people can support peace in Ukraine and oppose authoritarian governments like this in their own homes, and their own backyards?
2: Yes, that's a very good question. So, you know, the most obvious weapons that we can send to Ukraine are Tanks and anti tank weapons and drones and so on and so forth. But there are a number of other ways, given the dependence of Putin's Russia on oil and gas, to undermine their ability to cause trouble. And so think about technologies, other technologies. One of the things that people have been pushing in the States for instance, is a a kind of renewed lend-lease program like the one before the Second World War uh, that sent to Britain vast amounts of material and support. In this case, you wouldn't be talking weapons necessarily, or in addition to them, you'd be talking about things like heat pumps, Uh, electric heat pumps that are endlessly more efficient. And if you could install a few million of them before the weather turned cold again, well, it would significantly diminish Vladimir Putin's ability to cause Europe to cower. Um, So those are the kind of technologies of liberation now, and they're extremely important, extremely affordable. The world's scientists and engineers have really done their job over the last decade, they've dropped the price of clean energy, energy from the sun and the wind by 90%. It's the cheapest energy on the planet now. And so they'll still be rich people from solar panels and wind turbines, but they won't be Vladimir Putin rich, you know, and they won't be able to exert those kind of controls.
1: And I want to talk a little bit about movements and fighting back, because, I mean, it's clear that we've already established we have the tools we need for a renewable energy revolution. And again and again, we hear that we have the knowledge and the means to stop the worst effects of climate change. We just need the political will to do so. But you've said before that climate activists have been too focused on politics, and in doing so, they've been missing something. Well...
2: Yeah. You know, there are two levers, I think, big enough that we could pull that are big enough that they might still have an effect on how high the temperature gets. One of those levers is marked politics, and people have pulled it pretty hard. It's, you know, we've done our best. The good news is that there's another lever big enough to matter, and that one's marked finance or money. In American parlance, I think. Uh, Washington is, for the moment, a very frustrating place to work, so we might want to work on Wall Street, too. (laughs) And some of us have been doing that, this divestment campaign, that I helped launch with Naomi Klein about a decade ago has become the largest anti-corporate campaign of its kind in history. We're at about 40 trillion dollars in endowments and portfolios that have divested in part or in whole from fossil fuel and that's been very helpful in limiting their access to capital. Now the big fight is about trying to get the banks to to stop lending to the fossil fuel industry, to cut off the lifeline to that industry that they've provided. And it's been a big lifeline since the Paris Climate Accords were signed. Uh, the four big banks in the U.S., Chase, City, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, have provided a trillion dollars to the fossil fuel industry. Uh, the banking system as a whole, over two trillion dollars. Uh, that's what keeps them going.
1: And... UN meteorologists announced that the world has a 50-50 chance of reaching 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2026. So clearly the alarm bells are ringing, but you've also cautioned that the fight to stop climate change is not necessarily about reason and data and these kind of facts. Can you explain what you mean by that?
2: Well, I mean, look, my experience is peculiar here because I wrote the first book about what we now call the climate crisis. But then in the 1980s, we called the greenhouse effect. Um, And I I was in my 20s at the time. And I, I think I expected that scientists having given a profound alarm about the worst thing that ever happened on the planet, that our political system would move to take action. And so I kept writing more books and piling up more evidence and having more symposiums and things, because I thought that's what it would take. It took me a while to realize that we had won the argument. The science was entirely clear, but we were losing the fight because the fight wasn't actually about data and evidence and reason. The fight was about what fights are usually about, money and power. And on the other side of this fight, the fossil fuel industry had so much money and had so much power that they were able to keep their business model intact, even though they lost the argument about climate change. And that's really when I began organizing.
1: And I mean, if it is about undermining money and power predominantly, what are some of the most important next steps to make? Where are some of the cracks that people should be honing in on?
2: I think that this banking stuff is very much a crack and both for this discussion of Ukraine and of climate. I've been doing a lot of work with a dear colleague in Ukraine, Svetlana Romanko, as she points out that fossil fuels become a weapon of mass destruction for both climate and its support for autocracies, and also that the same banks who have been backing the fossil fuel industry, have also been backing Vladimir Putin's Russia for decades, even though it was clear in both cases that they were destabilizing the climate and that Putin was a thug. So
1: what advice would you then give to people who do care about the climate, but they feel kind of small and insignificant compared to all that?
2: Each of us are small and insignificant compared to both the power of the fossil fuel industry and to the scale of the physics involved in climate change. The only way around it is to join together with others. And that's why there are these organizations now that can take that energy and put them to good common use. That's our hope and if we build campaigns large enough, then uh, our individual voices will swell into a chorus, perhaps loud enough to begin to drown out the power of the Exxons and the Putins and the other real villains on this planet who seem determined to keep us locked in our current brutal course. We have a window open, though that window is closing, And we need now to move as we've never moved before. We have to figure out how to work together to save lives. And it'll be difficult, but it's not beyond us if we get to it.
1: Bill McKibben, thank you so much for your time.
2: Well, what a pleasure to get to be with you. I enjoyed it immensely.
1: my conversation with bill mckibben journalist author environmentalist founder of 350.org and third act next up germany's controversial colombian coal deal and later a visit to lithuania to observe how seasons and all they signify are changing two months after the start of the war in ukraine in 2022 Germany announced it would reduce its energy imports from Russia. As of early 2023, the German government said it was no longer reliant on Russian fossil fuels. In its race to find alternatives, Germany reopened coal-fired power plants in the country, it delayed plans to phase out nuclear, it increased renewable output and struck up deals with other countries to import their fossil fuels. One of those new deals that's been particularly controversial is with Colombia, home to one of the biggest open-cast coal mines in the world, owned by Swiss company Glencore. In 2016, Colombia was Germany's second most important coal supplier. But that changed, and for good reason too, because coal mining in Colombia has long been linked to environmental destruction and human rights violations. So now that Germany has reignited this relationship, critics point out that even though the government may no longer be funding war crimes in Ukraine, some of its alternatives aren't that much better. From the ground in Colombia, Marie-Christine Borser and Anna Herberg sent this report, presented by Elliot Douglas.
0: A small child holds up her arm. It's covered with countless open sores. Luis Misael Socares Epuna is convinced that a monster is to blame for his five-year-old daughter's skin disease. Monster. That's what they call the El Cerrojón coal mine here in the Guajira region of Colombia, the largest open pit mine in Latin America.
3: This is not the only case. In our communities, many children as well as older people have the same skin disease. It comes from the coal dust that has polluted our air. When rain falls, the leaves of the tree are black and there's an oily black film on the water. Luis Misael
0: Socaraz Epuna belongs to the indigenous Wayu people who have lived here in the Guajira region for hundreds of years. But the gaping maw of the open pit mine, which extends deep below the earth's surface, is encroaching ever closer on indigenous people's homes and communities. The diseases came with the mine, Luis says. Excavation at El Cerojón first began 40 years ago, and today the mine is wholly owned by the Swiss-based multinational company Glencore. Glencore exports about 30 million tons of coal a year all over the world, including to Germany. The Wayu communities fear that El Cerojón will soon grow so large it swallows up their villages altogether. Though Russia's war raging in Ukraine is thousands of miles away from here, it affects the Wayu people too.
3: The The war between Russia and Ukraine has meant that no more coal is to be bought from Russia. Now Colombia is supposed to step in. Even though Germany once said they would stop imports from Colombia, that now seems to have been forgotten. And the ones who suffer are us here.
0: Environmentalists are on high alert. Colombia's constitutional court has ordered the mining company to take more precautions in its operations. But El Cerrojón is not complying, says geologist Julio Ferro Morales of the environmental organization Terraí, and there is no pressure to do so from the government either. On the contrary, they are complicit with international corporations like Glencore, says Julio.
5: It is part of the policy of this country to rely on the exploitation of raw materials. Government institutions actively support this exploitation. The studies that Cerrejon used to obtain mining licenses were poorly conducted. With the same data from the company, but interpreted by our experts, we were able to prove the enormous damage done to water, air and the
0: environment." Colombia's Ministry of Mines and Energy did not respond to a request for comment. The mine operators, however, responded saying they were complying with Colombian law, according to a nine-page reply. The German companies STEAG and NBW, which procure coal from open cast mining in Colombia, said in a statement to the German public broadcaster, In the past, Serrajon has given us no reason to doubt the basis of trust established over many years. Indeed, although there is fierce opposition to the mine in the region, it does also have its supporters. Despite the destruction of the environment and local communities, the mine is praised for creating jobs in one of the poorest regions in the country. And that's a dispute that is dividing the region's villages. For local people, like Leobardo Alberto Sierra Frias, it's about cultural identity and protection of the land. He also belongs to the indigenous Wayu, who make up more than 40% of the population of the Guajira. He points to a muddy brown rivulet that winds through the sandy brown earth between stones and grass. This was once the Arroyo Bruno stream. Cerrojón had it diverted for almost four kilometres in order to mine coal there. The company created a new riverbed, which it praises as rich in biodiversity.
5: Sierra Frias can only shake his head. Today there is some water in the stream, but only because it rained a little for once. There are no more fish, our medicinal plants don't grow here anymore, and the water is totally polluted since they diverted the river. Without water we would have to leave here, so we would lose our habitat and our identity. The Arroyo Bruno is the last
0: remaining tributary of the Rio Rancherío. It's the only river in the region, and therefore vital to the water supply in the already dry, semi-desert Guajira. The European representatives from Glencore and those that source coal from Colombia should come here and talk to the communities, insists Luis Misael Socaraz Epuna.
3: The coal that you're using is stained with blood, with misery and displacement. Here, locally, thousands of families are affected. And what has become of the discourse of phasing out coal? Or is the damage simply being outsourced? If we want to fight climate change, we have to stop relying on fossil fuels worldwide. Since Luis
0: started campaigning against the mine in Guajira, Colombia, he has been wearing a bulletproof vest. He says he has so far survived four assassination attempts by unknown persons. But he doesn't want to give up. The YU's homeland is at stake, and the future of the next generation with it, including that of his five-year-old daughter.
1: don't look the same everywhere in the world. Where you live, winter may barely turn the temperature down. The rainy season might stretch on forever, or summer might be a rare few days each year. In any case, it's no doubt been changing over the past hundred years as global temperatures have been rising. But how would you feel about the changing nature of seasons if your daily language reminded you of birds that are due to return, or the type of bitter cold that you no longer experience? In Lithuanian, the names of the months are a regular reminder of the natural phenomena that define each season. But those seasons are changing. Diver Rapickeita has this report, narrated by Inika Mules.
6: In Lithuania, urban greenery and lush forests help keep track of seasons. But seasonal changes are also embedded in the Lithuanian language where months are named after birds, trees, or agricultural activities. This is shared by Lithuanians, Poles, and Ukrainians. The tradition seems to be rooted in folklore. Lucas, a young mathematics and physics teacher in Vilnius, spends his free time singing traditional songs at one of the oldest folk ensembles, Ratilo. Folklore seems like something outdated, such
0: as the stereotype,
5: but in fact it carries the most modern concepts, such as learning to learn, learning to just be a zero-waste lifestyle and sustainability. Here, there is a lesser white-throat at some distance. Over there are two types of sparrows, a blue tit, some starlings.
6: For ornithologist and educator Marius Karlounas, a simple walk in the park in the centre of Vilnius, the Lithuanian capital, is an opportunity to take stock of the birds that have already returned from their wintering locations.
5: Wherever we would go in the fields, in a forest, in a park or bushes, we would hear an orchestra of birds.
6: In Lithuanian, March is kovas, which translates as rook. April is bolandis, which means pigeon, and May is geguje, that's cuckoo. But have these names become misaligned as the climate changes and the birds no longer behave like they used to?
5: The way birds are coded into month names would suggest that they are active or that they return that particular month. And if we read older ornithology books, that is correct. And rooks would return to their colonies in March. They essentially never wintered in Lithuania. They used to fly away as it was too cold. Lately, during approximately the last two decades, we actually have wintering rooks in quite large flocks. And without doubt, birds from further north come to us. They used to fly further south. Now Lithuania is good enough for them to winter. It has become tropical for them.
6: (laughs) Marius says that during his lifetime, starlings, cranes, and geese all started wintering in the country, and bee eaters, which are southern birds, started breeding here.
5: I could show you the birds that never existed in Lithuania and spread here with climate change, or the northern birds that are no more. Birds have started examining the conditions, and they no longer read books written by ornithologists.
4: I have a riddle for you. 12 eagles, 52 pigeons, 365
6: sparrows. Some Lithuanians have noticed that January is no longer dry as its name suggests. But Victoria Machulite, chief climatologist at the Lithuanian Hydrometeorological Service, does not think that the names for months were ever completely accurate. Even so, in the long term data she analyzes, she can see a clear change in seasons over 30 to 50 years. All seasons are getting warmer, but the temperature has particularly risen in winter. We will still have snow covered despite climate change, but it won't last as long and it will be less predictable. Ethnology expert Libertas Klimka explains that the names of the months Lithuanians know today have been shifting all along, because traditional months used to be
2: lunar. In dictionaries published in the 17th century, Lithuanian names are juxtaposed with corresponding names of months in other languages. The name for November was more aligned with the 10th month of the year, December with the 11th, and January with the 12th. This shift could have happened when the first Lithuanian calendars appeared, and they mimicked German and Polish examples compiled in milder climates. Meanwhile, the names of the warm months correspond well with phenology, as the timings of agricultural activities aligned with the
4: calendar.
6: While most Lithuanians understand that climate change is real and want the government to do something about it, Vilnius University scientist Justus Kashis noticed that the media portrays climate change as something abstract, and it's difficult for people to grasp it.
4: Even though we love forests and talk about them a lot, and we love the seaside very much and travel there often. We are evidently moving away from the natural cycles. we no longer remember what winters used to be like or what Lithuanian winters should be like before the climate crisis. We simply forget
6: asked whether the Lithuanian language is a constant reminder of seasonality, Eustace says that these cultural codes have become empty shells.
4: We lack an understanding of our oneness with nature. We have it in our words, in the names of our months, and even in our holidays, but we lack the meaning.
6: Ironically, he thinks the breakthrough in talking about climate change came with the news of youth activism abroad, especially Greta Thunberg. But the momentum didn't last without more local voices.
4: We should speak more about it in Lithuanian and not leave people to search for information in English. It is especially important for elderly people.
6: at the folk rehearsal, Ratillo singers pick an old song about a lake freezing in summer, which makes doing laundry impossible. But has anyone written a song yet about disrupted commutes and excessive air cooling bills? Perhaps folk songs will be forced to change along with the climate.
1: Thanks also to the Ratilo Ensemble for their music in that piece from Diver Repačkajta. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Living Planet. If you're listening to this on the radio and you'd like to listen to more Living Planet, check out our podcast feed, available on all podcast platforms. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Charlie Shield, and we'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the world.